Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation for World Storytelling Day 2016. This year, the theme is Strong Women. actually going to get, hit this topic a little bit backward. At the end of the show, I'm going to get to the story that uh, I think ties in at least somewhat to the theme of strong women. And uh, I need to get there through telling another story first. So this will be one of these situations where I need to tell one story to explain the meaning behind another. This also is going to be an explicit language version of inappropriate conversations. And I know I've said this before, but I, maybe it's a ramping up thing over time. This probably is the most explicit episode so far. The good news is that all of that content, which would carry the explicit warning sticker, comes at the end of the show. That's where the different drummer will be. That's where the story will be that ties directly into the world storytelling theme of strong women. And the material that I'm going to cover up until that point will not be explicit in any way whatsoever. So on the podcasts uh, like the Seder Sphere is a good example of it. There's a particular listener and fellow podcaster named Nicole from Greetings from Nowhere who has a, a very strong moral compass uh, described within the Pride 48 community, for example, as being a, quote, good Christian woman, unquote. And uh, they will bid her farewell when they hit storytelling on the Seder Sphere that's going to turn in a particularly blue direction, that's going to have strong sexual content or uh, an erotic point of view. And there'll be a point in this podcast near the end of it where I, I will probably try to remember to say goodbye to Nicole as well. It's an explicit language show. But first, I want to deal with the topic of storytelling experiments just in general and use an example of a storytelling experiment to explain kind of what happened when I get to the story I'm going to share at the end. There'll be two short stories shared today in this World Storytelling Day episode. One called Part-Time, I'll get to first. The other, What the Neighbors Think, will be at the end. Of course, talking about writing and short stories and uh, short story experiments is nothing new for inappropriate conversations. Within the first handful, I dived into some material from what I called a Linton writing experiment, uh, trying to write in 40 different fictional styles, prose and poetry styles, over the course of 40 days, and combining that all into a single short novella, I also have dealt with uh, some of the materials from an experiment I call Letters to Myself. So writing experiments aren't new here. And in the past, one of the things that I've tried to work more and more into the content is elements from the Manifestos of Neo-Surrealism, which was uh, perhaps my most serious writing experiment. Just to do a couple of callbacks, because it makes sense here. Inappropriate Conversations number 144, The Death of the Author, included a piece from the Manifestos of Neo-Surrealism called Authorial Intent. Inappropriate Conversations number 122 included Disappear Here, one of the prose poems from that same work. And now I'm going to go back to it, maybe for the last time, not sure, for one called Part Time. What I want to do is share the story, then tell the story behind the writing of the story, because that'll explain kind of what happens when I get to the end of the episode, and start talking about uh, an experiment interrupted, so to speak. But first, let me just dive right into the material that I wanted to share on World Storytelling Day that isn't directly related to the topic of strong women. 
From March 13th, 1986. Part-time. A neo-surrealist preparing responses before an exit interview. The sun didn't come up today to go downtown. That's where I was, anyway. I really shouldn't bother. Like it was angry with me and makes me too confused to think of another reason for being disturbed. Plus, I'm seeing her all the time now. That's right, me. I was in her area. Now, I was a little warm, and fish don't mix well. But none of the other people on my wing know, especially about days like the ones coming. But the smiling faces say which viewpoint is correct. At least, I didn't see the point. But you use whatever works. I really don't smoke anymore. When I do a good job, especially before my visit to the third floor, it, it just takes time. I'm worried because I'm thinking there is something specific she asks. It is usually crowded anyway. I saw the outline of a fire truck. It was a nice, cool day, but it made me feel better. I, I can read and write. Luckily, today, when the sun doesn't come up, I don't. Nor do the kind words tell me anything. They can't. I didn't believe any of them were up before I got up, so I went to the courthouse. That's fair. You think about it. There is no lunch. Speaking of restaurants, the other day I saw a girl who was beginning to wonder if she hadn't wanted to hear me try again, but no way. I said, no way. That hope, that fear, it's always rushing toward me. I cannot explain. Wasn't it? I think it was hot enough to merit needing to feel better because this job doesn't require arithmetic. And I spend the whole night listening to mean, angry interjections one way or another because they don't know. What do you think? I'm going down to the third floor. I'm off, even though there are other reasons for me to be on. I was wondering the other day about working. There is where I used to do the drinking, over, over there. It's been in my plain view all along, although I used to just say I was there. They wouldn't believe I could do it without getting burned. By the way, if one nobody says anything to me, or anybody, the girl will never talk to me at all. I slept late, because I felt like an administrative assistant until lunch. The third floor is the lunch floor. I drink root beer with oriental cuisine. And I asked a Japanese man about it at the Pitchfork Pub. It seemed appropriate because I have a middle management restroom, the fifth floors. Seeing her here is always surprising. It was white with a blue trim because they sprayed me with water. I'm really glad the girl downstairs doesn't know that, though. For that matter, the girl on the third floor looks just like one of those firemen. But she was sick last night. They didn't know I had moved to the fifth floor of seven. They didn't know the typesetting, word processing, and root beer are handled exclusively by a departmental friend of mine. But how many of them didn't know she was working with me, position and all? If I had my own stall, it was being painted. That much I know. I had a strange dream, but at least it had a ladder in it. They were all over me. Then they just swept off. They seemed happy I was around. Because of the looks, maybe? They, they resent my bosses, but not the one that yelled, the management classes I took in college haven't been tested here. That is, as far as I know, I feel fine out in the cold. Maybe I'm not feeling for our corporation, but that is just as well for the lobby vendors. The other machines just leave people eating fortune cookies. Well, not with me, they don't. I had seen her from the very beginning, and everything I am saying is true except for using the restroom the other night, which has nothing to do with all the typical cliches. So they left me in my solitude. Still, I get the idea that some of my associates were using the top floor to take control of the other ones, 
My boss doesn't know about these relationships between staff members. I can tell. She doesn't count because of the morning. My friends just called because I left with a headache. It has no correlation to why I don't like colas or fruit drinks. Just for their taste? I don't think you know what I mean. So I asked her, but it did not register. I don't use the facilities with my new co-worker. That might explain why the truck rushed toward me and I woke up kind of aching, particularly since my colleagues are not. I've got to care for some unfinished business. If my boss doesn't think so, he'll yell at me, but most days he doesn't. The members, and I do mean members, were supposedly angry because she is not part of management. She called me lazy because I didn't like the idea of watching a movie last weekend. The place bothers me. Anyway, I don't like machines. Many would have done it if it weren't for how long she's been working here. I had to explain my constantly running into her on the third floor. Most of the headache I woke up with was because a man kept yelling at me for getting too near the temples. I'm feeling better. For good reasons, too. I realize that some of this is none of their business. In public, I don't talk to myself out loud at all, which requires being closer-knit than the others are, even when they aren't going to work. It was not all about a boy trying to use the vending machines that are down there. I guess that's another reason the third-floor omen is associated with eating. She said it had been that way for three months. Well, I was standing on this dirt road on fire. On fire? Well, he meant now. I had a couple of memoranda passed around in the office. I don't care why they come and go. Another reason why I'm insecure when I'm here. Of course, it would be easy to work out. I don't think I dislike my job. I just lost my virginity. What's new? Ever since I quit smoking, all that bothers me is the noise. All of it. I never noticed it so much before. Now, seeing her around more, I make a point to look out the window. Gravel, really. Looking up at what he was saying, I realized I was tired because of those two beers at lunch with my tuna. Letters from the officer addressed to me. I don't know. I'm probably a little off until I get to work in the mornings. It's just me. Isn't that what the bother is all about? The machine gives me an eerie feeling. Typing and chatter get to my head. Oh well. I must confess. Just the other day I saw her, like I did before. This time she asked when I'm down there again that I don't give her words, just clear blue sky. Then I heard sirens, grabbed a hose, and started spraying myself and the salads. I've decided beer and instructions make me wonder if I'm a little hard to get along with. The letters and memos keep coming, and it is only too clear. They dislike me. Hard to think they know me well enough to judge. Nerd Hurdles, where every week, Jacob and Mandy will help you navigate the labyrinth of nerddom. Don't be afraid. But you will be. No, you won't. You will be. Nerd. This is simplysyndicated.com. I must confess, just the other day I saw her like I did before. This time she asked, when I'm down there again, that I don't give her words. Just clear blue sky. This was near the end of my senior year in college, or the end of my first senior year in college, and I was working my way through some writing experiments, and one of the things that I decided to do was to uh, try to leverage some automatic writing. I'm one of those people who tends to remember my dreams. An episode last year in Inappropriate Conversations called Seeing Spot Run was built around that idea of, well, remembering a dream and then being able to retell the dream, and in some cases perhaps 
you know, spackle in some of the holes. Uh, you know, dreams are always going to be filled with jump cuts and um, nonsensical juxtapositions. And if you can begin to remember what your dream was and connect the dots in some ways, you might be able to come up with some sort of a linear story. And the idea was to sit down and simply do sort of automatic dream memory, multiple dreams, with composite figures in those dreams, and put it all down to paper. And the dreams themselves were very kind of simple and ordinary, you know, boy meets girl type stuff, or uh, being in uh, unexpected conflict with people, or dealing with strange weather, or falling, those types of themes. But I chose to do it in a slightly different way, and I'm wondering if now, here in the year 2016, the concept of Blue Book is not going to resonate or make sense with most of the people who are listening to me. In fact, what what I'm going to do is go and get an image of what a Blue Book is, at least what it was in the 1980s in in a university environment, and probably use that as show art so I can at least point to it and say that's what it looked like. But in college back then, uh, perhaps to tell the story a little bit better, You have a period of time where there were no smartphones, obviously. We're talking about the 1980s. There also really weren't any computers, at least not personal computers. Most of the writing that I did for things like term papers or even transcription of my notes from classes was done on a traditional portable typewriter. I don't think I even had a typewriter at the time that was fancy enough to do italics, you know. And so you'd have another generation of typewriter to come, and then you'd hit the personal computing era with uh, programs like WordPerfect, and then eventually you'd have Microsoft Word developing to what it is today. But back then, you really didn't have that. And when you were going in to take a test in a class, often, not always, but often, the professor would instruct you that you needed to come to the class with nothing but a number two pencil with an eraser on it and a blue book. So what's a blue book? Well, basically, a blue book is some pieces of notebook paper uh, strung together in sort of a 6 by 10 sort of a format. It wasn't as big as a spiral notebook, but basically inside the blue cover, and by cover, use cover loosely, it was all just made out of the same paper stock, was college-lined, you know, college-ruled lines that you could write in. So if you were going in and the professor... Uh, revealed on an overhead projector or on the chalkboard, three essay questions. You had something like 12 pages to play with to allocate space to answer those questions in a blue book. And I can remember taking tests with blue books where I actually got permission and needed permission to use more than one blue book to fill out the answers to the questions on that final exam. One of my mantras is life's an essay test. We're obliged to give essay answers. I'm more likely going to over-communicate than under-communicate, I guess would be the way I would put that. And on these tests, I often did. So I had blue books laying around because you never knew when you were going to get, you know, last-minute notification that next week's midterm exam, hey, we're going to do this on a blue book after all, and you'd need to bring that with you to class. It's a good way of controlling the environment, I suppose, to make sure that no one was trying to take advantage of, of the opportunity to cheat. So you come into the course with this empty blue book. So what I did with this automatic writing experiment was decided that I would write it down rather than typing, which I normally would have done, and write it down in a blue book. But here's the trick, and perhaps it's so obvious that people have already picked up on it. It's not a purely written surrealist short story in the sense that my subconscious was driving the changes in tone from one paragraph to the next or one sentence to the next or even mid-sentence. No, it was a formalistic exercise, because instead of starting on page one of the blue book and writing and filling page one and then going to two and three and four, what I did was I wrote 
every single thing that I intended to write to share these multiple composite dream experiences on the first row of every single page of the 12 pages of the blue book. And then flipping over to, you know, row number two and row number three across each one of the pages and basically taking what could have been somewhat linear dream remembrance storytelling and telling it out of order. Because when I was done, I ended up having several pages with several lines on each page filled in. And then you could turn around and try to retype and recreate the story using one page at a time instead of the one row at a time as I had transcribed it. And it actually turned out to be a more successful experiment than I thought. Uh, Not that the story is particularly profound or even coherent, but it needed to only have a measure of coherency. It only needed to reflect some sort of stream of consciousness. And I was actually personally, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I was personally pleased that it wasn't quite as obvious as I thought it would be that there were essentially recurring themes on what you might call every few rows of each page. That if you go from page one to page two, you're suddenly back to uh, firefighters being involved or someone being in the cafeteria or someone being worried about whether they have access to the restroom. And those things keep coming back and back and back. I thought it might be too obvious that it was nothing more than a formalistic exercise. And it's not quite that bad. And there were moments of what I might call accidental beauty, especially in that last paragraph that I kind of reshared at the end there is something of a, of a quote box. She asked that I don't give her words, just clear blue sky. I did not have a dream where a composite female figure told me not to give her words, but to give her clear blue sky. I had a dream about a person or multiple people rolled up into one, and there was an intense interpersonal conversation that happened in that context. But that wasn't the dialogue. That dialogue came out of the formalistic exercise as a way of taking something that was as inherently surreal as a dream and making it oddly Dadaistic by twisting it in such a way. So I knew that although it was unlikely that this kind of experiment would consistently work, and it certainly wasn't going to be the focus of what I was trying to accomplish, I had other ideas that I was going to pursue, including writing sort of a long eulogy for the death of my high school pseudonym. But it worked well enough that I thought to myself, maybe, just maybe, this is worth trying again. And the attempt to do it again is what has led me to the piece of story that I want to share today that ties in somewhat, somewhat ironically, with the theme of strong women. Now, from a World Storytelling Day perspective, I'm a big enthusiast, I suppose. I've done one of these uh, episodes at this time of year focused on sharing stories just about every other year. In some cases, they've been sort of personal storytelling. In other cases, like this one, it's the actual sharing of a, of a previously written out short story. And I don't know whether, I, I say it every time, I don't know if I'll get to it next year or if I'll wait two years, and maybe in two years I won't like the topic. Um, but I've done things for World Storytelling Day that vary from movie reviews to now sharing a surrealist short story to now sharing something that probably qualifies as erotic fiction. Now, I never really set out to do any sort of writing in the, in the genre of erotic fiction. It was simply a means to an end. And perhaps the only way to do this is to tell the story behind the story and then cut myself off right before I hit the point where the explicit language tag is absolutely relevant. I was on a long ride. 
almost a Route 66 ride, although I suppose that in truth it would be more like Route 44, Interstate 44. My brother was moving, him and all of his possessions, from St. Louis to California. And this was after graduating from uh, completing all of his college work and beginning his career. And so he was going to have a fairly large, not truck driver large, but, you know, uh, large enough that you'd want to have a fellow driver with you. If you're going to cover states like Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and California to go from one place to another. And I joined him on the uh, Oklahoma side of that trip. And we took that entire journey together, moved him into his place and did a little bit of sightseeing before I flew back. And along the way, while doing sightseeing and other stuff, we ended up uh, hitting used record stores, used bookstores. Uh, we visited uh, the Warner Brothers Electro-Atlantic headquarters in Burbank. Just got a kind of sense of the place. And, you know, for a city where traffic is you know notoriously bad, the reality is that visiting Los Angeles and driving makes a heck of a lot of sense. It's a city that was built to be driven in, which is, I guess, part of the reason why the traffic is so notoriously bad. But along the way, and I don't know whether it was his purchase or my purchase, or whether we had another reason, I I talk about it in uh, early and inappropriate conversations. I think detailing the uh, event in our lives that my brother and I call the Thanksgiving Paper Football Classic, this would be uh, Inappropriate Conversations 38 from very early December, the very first year of the show. Because Inappropriate Conversations now hit... The sixth year, we're uh, in 2016, it started in March of 2010. At least once a year, at least when we were in college, we would buy a copy of either Playboy or Penthouse magazine in this August-September time frame because we were playing uh, competitive paper football against one another and needed to know not just who the, the best teams in college football were because we would play as teams. It's all detailed in Inappropriate Conversations 38. But y'all, we also wanted to play um, as the worst team. So getting the top 20 or the top 25 poll is easy. Uh, it was even easy back before um, cable was so dominated by ESPN. But nobody, short of maybe Riverfront Times in St. Louis, Missouri, was actively publishing a bottom 25 list of the current worst teams in college football and, and what their struggles and travails were in the most recent week. So the best you could do is the preseason list that you would get, and, and I think both Playboy and Penthouse magazines published these. One was uh, the best teams in college football, one was the worst teams in college football, sort of a preseason preview. And it was always entertaining anyway to read that particular article, not that I was necessarily solely focused on articles. But that particular article was always interesting because you come to a point in the season, about halfway through, where you could gauge all of the preseason pundits against who they thought was going to be successful and sort of judge the quality of their prognostications. But the other end was, at least one of these two magazines was going to produce a worse list. And how wrong could they be? Would somebody that made the worst 20 teams in college football, according to uh, a men's magazine, be so wrong that one of those teams could actually be you know, undefeated midway through the season and definitely bound for a college football bowl game at the end of the year? The truth is, from Playboy magazine's perspective, the most interesting things in written word were the interviews and this once-a-year article previewing college football. I'm not going to disparage them to say that their, uh, that their short stories weren't valuable, that they didn't produce other articles that were noteworthy. At that point in my life, college age, early 20s, I wasn't all that interested in the articles. There was an exception, though. Penthouse magazine, the perhaps arguably edgier competitor to Hugh Hefner's network, was 
all about letters, I think would be the way you'd word that. Then in addition to the photography aspect of that particular genre of magazine, there was a letters aspect that was much more significant in its impact from the penthouse perspective than the Playboy perspective. And I'm willing to grant without argument that perhaps all of those letters were little more than fan fiction. Someone creating scenario out of whole cloth and and sharing it in this titillating section of that particular men's magazine. Or maybe it was full of half-truths or even 75% truths. I don't know, and I don't care. But in this one particular August, 1986, we stumbled across an example of a letter that sort of struck me as a very interesting role reversal. It was taking the decision-making and even the, uh, the impetus in a sexual encounter between a committed couple, at least a arguably fictional committed couple, in an anonymous letter to a men's magazine, and put all of the sort of decision-making in the hands of the woman and told the story from that perspective, dealing with things that I think probably by now, if you're an active listener of shows like uh, Dan Savage's podcast or the Sex Nerd Sandra show on the Nerdist Network, we probably have quick and easy monikers for these types of things. It would be uh, playing with issues of bondage and discipline and, and control, and sex role reversal, and delayed gratification, and um, so forth and so on. But this you know, anonymous letter caught, you know, caught my interest enough to say, that by itself is only, it is what it is, right? It's softcore pornography or what have you. But if you were to take that and create one or two of those kinds of scenarios and put them into that same exercise that I did earlier in the year with part-time and create one of those sort of twisted, swirly surrealism, again, literally just writing this out in the first row of every page of a blue book and jumping to the second row and the third row, and seeing how this sort of you know, mild erotica, or maybe serious erotica, would twist and turn into something completely different than it was before. And for me, for the most part during this manifestos of neo-surrealism era that kind of culminated for me at the very end of the 1980s. The prose poems stood alone as just the name of, just with a regular title, but I subtitled almost every short story that came out during that period with some sort of uh, neo-surrealist doing activity, kind of, a, kind of an approach. So the one that I shared today was uh, part-time, a neo-surrealist preparing responses before an exit interview. And you can see how dreams that didn't really have that much directly to do with work could be twisted using this formalism of mine into something that does actually read like somebody is at a job fearing being fired or about to quit and mentally preparing themselves for the things that are bothering and annoying them and making them want to quit. That just sort of, again, came out of the automatic writing exercise. Other examples, though, uh, third person, a neo-surrealist dialing an operator-assisted telephone call, a simple yes or no, a neo-surrealist writing a job recommendation for an associate, and the one I've already shared, authorial intent, a neo-surrealist revising a will from his deathbed. There's another one in here, too. I won't, I won't take the time. What I mainly wanted to do, though, was to introduce this story on World Storytelling Day, under the auspices of it being about strong women, or at the very least, women in charge in the bedroom, and tell you, jokingly but actually honestly and seriously, that it was going to be called Name and Address Withheld, and something about a, a neo-surrealist writing a letter to the editor of a men's magazine. 
So before I jump into the story, this is probably the place where I should say a couple quick things. First, there's a mistake here. Uh, the writing exercise works if I actually finish and turn it into something surrealist. If it stands on its own, it's really nothing more than my version of this same letter to the editor that I read in August of 1986, because I didn't want to copy somebody else's work. So it sort of doesn't really hold up. But the bigger issue is, it's going to earn its explicit language tag. It's uh, speaking as freely as you'd expect one of those penthouse forum letters to speak. So, in other words, as I veer here into the second short story, and the one that ties most directly into the notion of strong women... um. Goodbye, Nicole, and all that that may imply. What the Neighbors Think In her opinion, it had been much too long since he had shown her how irresistible her breasts were. By the time he got back to the bedroom, she was already topless and lying by the side of the bed. He only had time to remove his shoes before she told him to join her on the floor. Since you were a little premature last night, I think it's about time you showed some stamina, she said. I set the alarm to go off in a few minutes, I won't say how many, but you've got to lick my breasts everywhere but the nipples during that time. For you, nipples are punishment until I say when. Visibly excited, he began to lick the sides of her breasts, working his way around and while she continued to address him in a commanding tone of voice. If you get a nipple wet once, I'll strip you. Twice, you'll be tied down for our sex tonight. Three times... You better start begging for mercy, because I will torture you all night. He was looking around each of her breasts in circles that were reaching closer and closer to the center each time. To delay his passion, a steamy desire she knew he had, particularly for her nipples, he would extensively lick her cleavage. She leaned back against the bed with her breasts resting pertly before his face, her nipples within his view as he stared at his outstretched tongue. After a few minutes... His confidence began to shake. Most of his concern was doubt over how long he would have to keep this up. Even 15 minutes might be too much. He didn't know that she had set the alarm for more than 30, trying to ensure a humiliating victory. One of the circles he was tracing from her cleavage to the side of her breast was cut short. In fact, it was a straight line. She pushed him away, rubbed her nipple dry, and stripped him bare. As he continued the torturous contest, he began rubbing his hardened penis against her leg. With this self-made distraction, she was sure he could not withstand her. She was correct. Her soft moans and gentle swaying of her breasts shattered his control over where his tongue was gliding. He passed too closely to her nipple, and before he knew it, had taken her into his mouth. She laughed and let him suck on her for a few seconds. As she pulled away and rubbed herself dry... She began to talk much more aggressively to him. When that alarm goes off, I'm tying you down, she said. I'm just going to love seeing you, spread eagle, and mine for the taking. He buried his face between her breasts as she continued his final round, and she began a chant she hoped would finish him off. I'm sorry, honey, if I'm making this hard for you by moving around too much. It's your fault, though. You got me excited. You know I love it when you take my nipple into your mouth and suck me hard. It pleases me, and I know you want to please me. He started to moan in response to her words. But be careful, dear. Right now, you are only tied down. If you're a good boy, I'll fuck you right. I'll just tie you down and get on top and ride you good. On the other hand, 
If you lick me one more time, just one more time, across either one of my dry, dry nipples, I might have to tease you even more while you were pinned against the bed. In fact, you might not get fucked at all. He was trying to stay within her cleavage for the final few minutes, but there was more time left than he knew. Torture or not, though, she said, I will make one promise, baby. I promise you I'll let you suck on each nipple. No matter what I do, I won't withhold them any more. She began to push her breast toward his face while, he, while she spoke. Imagine that. Two nipples. You get to suck on my tits. While she was speaking, the rhythm of her movements seduced him into licking her faster. He was out of control, licking her so fast he didn't even realize what he was doing. The next thing he knew, he was tied down on all four corners of the bed, and she was naked above him. She placed each nipple into his mouth, permitting him to suck for what couldn't have been more than 30 seconds. There you go. I've kept my promise. He started moaning for more and reminding her of what she had said. I gave you both, she responded. Now, quit whimpering, or the neighbors will start wondering what's going on. He couldn't quit, because she kept passing her breasts within inches of his face. He whined as he tried to pull his mouth toward her in spite of his bondage. I guess the only way to shut you up is to put something over your mouth, she said. She sat on his face. He took his passion out on her clitoris, which was fine with her because she had become quite excited, particularly when he was rubbing his penis against her after being stripped. The cunnilingus was still being performed, off and on nearly an hour later, and he thought he might drown in her juices. Alternatively, she would leave his face when an orgasm grew too intense and straddle his penis, letting him enter her slowly and gently only to pull out after a single stroke to bury her pussy on his face again. As expected, he began to beg for a fuck. She would pull away from his face and slowly wrap her pussy around his penis in a decline that seemed to take five minutes. During these endless moments, he began to coax her. Please fuck me. Please, please fuck me. After she was satisfied with her extended climax, she finally answered his pleading with a question while his penis was slowly penetrating her. Why? I'm horny. I'm very, very horny. No, give me a good reason why I should. Because I've been good. No, you haven't. You've been noisy. The only time you've been quiet is when I bury your face. And you moan then, too. He began to look for another approach. I need you to fuck me because my dick has gotten dry because of all the teasing. When you get off me, it dries up. Oh, she said, smiling. You need lubrication. Yes, please, get on top and lubricate me good, he pleaded. She got off him and began fumbling through a drawer at the side of the bed. Now, what can we do for a bad boy who makes too much noise but needs to be lubricated? He knew he was in trouble by the way she said the word lubricated. She pulled out a moisturizing lotion and began teasing him with a creamy hand job that concentrated on the sensitive areas of his penis head. An expert with her hands, she knew how to manipulate his penis. Alternatively, she would jerk him off in a more conventional way, lighting a fire in his balls and preparing him for ejaculation. Then she would pull away and caress his head in a manner that calmed his ejaculatory tide, but provided an almost painful sensation of pure pleasure. During these times, he would writhe against the ties on his arms and legs while he struggled to shake her hands from his penis and interrupt the pleasure that had grown too intense. He tried to muffle his orgasmic cries, but she told him to quit trying. You've already failed at the quiet game, honey. 
Now we're going to play Wake the Neighbors. His face reddened, embarrassed by her suggestion, because he was fully aware that she was in a position to do anything she wanted to him. I won't stop playing with you, making you squirm, shake, and scream until you really scream. She was grabbing his head and working him over hard. Come on, don't hide those moans. Let me hear what your orgasm feels like. I won't quit until I know I've pleased you by the sounds of your screams of pleasure. His moans and cries grew louder as his voice climbed scales only sung during the most intense orgasms. When he reached his peak at full vocal expression, she would jerk on him for a while. However, once he calmed, she would force him back up to the heights of resistance. She wouldn't jerk him again until he was screaming, either in reflex response to the pleasure she was giving him, or in futile calls for mercy. She really couldn't tell which. While she jerked him, he begged her to stop and let him come. But she manipulated his penis and made him slur his words due to the shivers she was sending all over his body. What's that? she would ask. I couldn't hear you. Could you talk more clearly? He never could, because she continued to use his penis to break up his sentences by bringing on waves of orgasm while he tried to talk, tricking him into mixing unintelligible moans of pleasure with his words. Once, he decided to work in the entire phrase quickly before she could tease him much by saying everything, you know, really fast. Please don't let me come, he said, instead of what he meant to say in two different sentences. After that, he knew he would receive no mercy. Tears were streaming down his face from the pleasure of her expert touches when she finally jerked him to a climax. Before she finished him off, his throat had grown sore from all the strange noises his orgasm had brought. Also, his penis was very tired. She released the ties on his limbs and rubbed his muscles to prevent cramping. After a while, he got up, walked around the house, and drank a couple of glasses of water. She put on a pair of panties. Returning to bed for the evening, he sucked and played with her breasts until, fully exhausted, he fell asleep in her arms. Greetings from the cockpit. This is Captain Scott, and we'd like to thank you for flying the Seder Sphere. This is co-pilot Cindy. We ask you at this time to unfasten your safety belt and release your chairs from their uptight position. We're high-flying with stopovers expected in theater, gaming, movies, television, and other mature destinations. We'd like to thank you for flying the frisky skies, and we hope to see you on our next flight to the Seder Sphere. Okay, so strong language, adult themes, arguably adult themes, and the issue is that I, I never really tangled it. It remains sort of an untangled, simple piece of what might be called fan fiction, and even worse, even though there's not a shred of plagiarism in it to my knowledge, it is still me imitating a form, a penthouse letters mentality, and actually taking a, a ton of direct inspiration from at least one of those actual letters. But it's an incomplete writing project, as it is. Now, I went ahead and slapped what the neighbors think is a name for it, but it was never actually going to be published, and never was, uh, presented for publication in that form. That was just stage one of what was going to be two or three of these stories, or perhaps for comic effect, a couple of these and then a couple of really more mundane sort of William Carlos Williams type, this is just to say I've eaten the plums in the freezer type stuff, to create an interesting combination, which is, because of the use of language, still going to be undeniably explicit, but probably undeniably not prurient in any way. Because 
it's only by stringing the concepts together in a particular way that you end up with something coherent enough to actually be, well, arguably erotic. So name and address withheld, a neo-surrealist short story never happened. What was left behind in this larval stage, uh, what the neighbors think, is what I'm going to present, again, with a bit of a wink, as a strong woman story for World Storytelling Day. A storytelling day that's inherently going to have a much smaller audience because, well, for one thing, the story itself isn't what it what it was meant to be if it grew up. And the other thing is that the nature of the story itself is going to limit the size of the audience. It is interesting, though, that presenting a story from this perspective is probably by its very nature inherently limiting. In other words, if I was to go into this particular world of fiction and try to function, focusing on women in charge is less likely to open up the broadest possible market as the opposite. You look at the general theme of movies like Secretary or the current craze of uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, you've got that opposite paradigm in place. So if there is something kind of noteworthy, and I, I say that with tongue fully in cheek, it's the um, gender role reversal in the way the story itself is told. And for that reason, leads me back to some thoughts I had in another previous edition of Inappropriate Conversation, looking kind of at the question of what we mean when we talk about perversity. Uh, probably the second year of the show, if I'm remembering. I'm going to take a quick look back just to kind of see if I can quickly spot the episode number itself. Uh, perversion as a concept was hit in episode 56. And the different drummer at that time was not the author, Melissa Phoebos, but I quoted her, I think, at the beginning of that show, because I wanted to talk a little bit about the concepts that she introduced in a book she wrote that I haven't, still haven't read yet, called Whip Smart, where at a certain point she comes to the conclusion that she may be a woman in charge functioning in a quote-unquote clinic of sorts, where she was in a sort of dominant role with male clients who were paying to be submissive to her in that role, in what, in what was described as being not a penetrative sexual way, but was still obviously in sexual situations. And she made the observation in an interview I heard on Fresh Air, which is how I'm familiar with the work, where she said, there's something a little bit odd about realizing that you're actually not really a strong woman in control of the situation as much as you think you are, because you're doing that in a role that you're being paid to do by the person who is actually the customer in that situation, who is the male person in that sort of gender role dynamic. So being paid to pretend to be in charge isn't necessarily the same thing as actually being in charge, I think was the point that she was trying to make, uh, the author, Phoebos. But it dawned on me that I thought, yeah, the same thing, right? The, the original author of this letter to the editor years and years ago to Penthouse Magazine was if you, you know, took the name and address withheld part uh, and set that aside and said this probably is a real honest story from a real honest person telling real live events between him and his partner, then in that situation his partner probably well and truly was fully in charge. Now the hard part for me on all this was trying to find a different drummer that would make some sense in the context of either World Storytelling Day in general or this particular topic. And of course, if I'd gone with strong women as a concept, I'm, the whole world could have opened up to me. But by sharing this particular story, it would just feel really wrong to drop some sort of reference at the end of an episode to Eleanor Roosevelt or something. It just, it wouldn't work. 
So for perhaps the first time ever, I'm going to go with a different drummer who probably is, well, a different drummer from the adult film industry, I guess is the way you'd word it. It's not quite as clear as that. As I share what little information I have about this individual, I think it'll help understand why it's so hard to make any biographical claims about this particular different drummer, who I'm only going to call Clickson. A couple of years ago, the podcast Secretly Timid was uh, having a conversation between the hosts where the question came up of whether or not it was possible for a man to reach a climax with no contact whatsoever outside of simply a vibrator or vibrating device of some sort. And interesting to me that despite the varied experiences that the hosts of that show have, coming from multiple different directions, multiple different sexual orientations and experiences, that they didn't really come to a clear conclusion on the answer. And coming way out of my normal comfort zone, I just thought to myself that at least empirically, I think the answer to that question seems to be yes, and I don't have a ton of experience, but what little experience I do have, the answer seemed to be yes. So I went online and uh, did probably something I shouldn't have done, which is look up for an example of that, either an answer to an Ask Jeeves type question, or in this case, not just an image, but an animated GIF image that actually, well, if a picture is worth a thousand words, this picture was worth 10,000 words. And I shared the link with them, not knowing anything else about it, not knowing what example I was looking for, not even knowing for sure I was going to find an example and not expecting the one that I found to be quite so, uh, well, graphic, I guess would be the word I'd use for it. And they talked about it on the next show, being absolutely shocked and surprised, not just to getting an answer to their question and getting uh, that kind of direct listener feedback, but the listener feedback coming from me. Let's be honest, I've done more Walk the Earth episodes in probably the last couple of months than I have Inappropriate Conversations, and the most recent Inappropriate Conversations episode to this one was quoting extensively from you know Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, putting the right words in Jesus' mouth. I would have been an unexpected source. So I decided that maybe that's an example of, uh, of strong women that ties in with the short story that I just shared, and did I have an idea who this person was? Well, going back to the link that I sent and the metadata behind that and trying to find some information, it turns out that it's someone named Clickson. Now, that's all I know. I couldn't give you a first name. And online, or I, if that's a first name, I couldn't give you a last name. And online, I've ended up with conflicting sets of information from a biographical perspective. So it's really hard to say. Is this individual from Florida or from Austria or from Germany? Don't know. Is the person depicted in the images that you know, I've seen online her husband, her life partner, some stranger, an actor? I, I don't know any of this. I will share what little I do know, though. I think by the time I get to the last of maybe three examples of very scant biographical information, it'll tie back into this question of strong women and what does it mean to try to answer the question of who's in charge or even what's the meaning of the word amateur? So the first thing I found that I was making, I could confirm I was on the right path. The face matched the face on that animated GIF from a couple years ago is Pinterest, where the page itself is just called Clickson. The head, headline is Clickson Bio, and it does say uh, at Florida. I'm skeptical of that, and I'm not even sure that this would be her doing the setup. You know, the way that is. I mean, uh, it doesn't, 
It doesn't have that certification thing of true celebrity like uh, like Twitter does, right? But the first sentence is, my name is Clixon, and my fetish is giving slow and sensual hand and blow jobs. And then she goes on a little bit from there, if it's really her. The next one is from a website called, called eroticity.net. It's part of a thread, and the post was put up by someone called Phototech, identified as a senior member of this particular board. And it's always a little bit weird when you're jumping into information from a forum. But remember, about a year ago at um, Record Store Day, it was a similar sort of random forum post like this that I found that revealed to me the true story behind the Longines Symphonette series of LP box sets produced years and years ago, kind of tying back to my childhood. Here's what Phototech says on this particular online forum. On, under the headline, Clixen, Austrian Handjob Princess. Clixen is a curvy lady who resides in Austria. She has a handjob fetish that began, I think, in her teens, and she has an interest in perfecting it. The lucky recipient is her partner in life. Clixen's material is mostly found, and then he gives a website, and parenthetically says, unfortunately, she has no website of her own and has no interest in running one, and she rarely, if ever, disappoints. Her activities on the net go three years back, but then this, of course, is from 2012, so, you know, back into, like, say, 2009. In his humble opinion, uh, Phototech, that is, she is the queen of hand jobs, and no one on planet Earth does them better. So that's the point of view of a fan. How this individual got his information, don't know. How accurate it is, don't know. But then again, I'm not citing her because of her biographical story. It's more, um, again, the image tying in. And again, instead of using clip art like this for the show, I'm going to use simply a picture of a blue book, a test examination tool from my university days. Finally, the last one that I'll share, under ramthesunlover.com. And again, these are web pages that are completely foreign slash new to me. He refers in his headline or her headline, uh, Clixon the Cock Whisperer, which I think is very funny. Uh, Clixon is one of the search terms consistently leading carnality lovers to this website. So, new website to me. So I thought I would gather together and, and post some of the new gifts and pics and a couple of video clips. I didn't spend a heck of a lot of time there. I was really more interested in the biography. Everything that I can see on the page, though, is consistent with what I shared with Secretly Timid. There's a confirmation here that this is a European person. Clixon is an Austrian amateur porn star, one who sells her self-made porn. Is that still amateur? He asks, parenthetically. The most popular post of all time is the one featuring her and others as, quote-unquote, the cock whisperers. Clixon specializes in handjob edging, and then he goes on with more detail. The detail is not really what's important. To me, it's that someone here has made an entire living out of one particular form of sexual behavior in what, by these accounts, I certainly couldn't say by all accounts, is a committed relationship. But taking the step of filming or videoing that activity in that relationship and putting it out for people to either see or to buy. There was an argument in the Supreme Court in the 1970s about sort of whether or not it was necessarily illegal from a pornography perspective. I put air quotes around that because I think the, the discussions in the 1970s were much broader than what I just steered away from. 
And that is, you know, is it necessarily a legal issue or even an ethical, moral issue if a voyeur is watching an exhibitionist do something sexual? That where where is consent broken down in that situation? If the person who wants to be seen is being seen by the person who wants to watch, inherently the problem. And it led to some decisions, some very interesting and almost comic decisions coming out of the Supreme Court during that era. One of them being that they, they couldn't make an argument, at least the majority of the justices, could not make an argument that it would be inherently illegal for a couple to shoot a pornographic scene in their bedroom, develop the film in their bathroom, and show it to anybody who wanted to come over to their house in their basement. That there was no interstate commerce clause being violated in that way. And that whatever concept of privacy the Supreme Court had at the time would have been well and fully intact throughout that entire exercise. Of course, the internet blows up all these kinds of concepts of what is private and what is personal. But that to me is a little bit less interesting than the parenthetical question that came up, I'll go back to it, on this Ram the Sun Lover uh, website, where he asks if you're still considered an amateur if you're selling your self-made porn. And that kind of is an interesting question, not one that I'm willing to meditate on, but interesting to call it out, at least for mild consideration, in a different drummer segment, in a very strange and appropriate conversations episode, one that could not ever be held up as representative of what this particular podcast is all about. But when you try to speak to a theme, and a theme like, in this case, strong women, well, you never know where exactly that's going to take you. Um, the concept of good monsters a couple of years ago took me in the direction of um, Hammer, B-movie, science fiction, and horror films, and Lilo and Stitch, sort of in combination with each other. You just never know where honestly exploring a topic is going to take you. But this notion of strong women, Melissa Phoebos's comment that was she really a woman in charge if she was paying to pretend to be a woman in charge, and overlapping that with this idea of are you really delivering an amateur product, a fan fiction project product if you're selling it? If you were packaging and publishing your fan fiction, even if it was self-published fan fiction, and turning that into enough of an enterprise that you were, quote, making a living off of it, at what point does it stop being amateur? At what point is it actually just flat-out fiction? Because for something to be that to cross that line between actually being fiction and just being a writing exercise doesn't really have anything to do with its quality. The, there's two different questions there, right? For me, when I look back on this short story, What the Neighbors Think, and compare it perhaps to part-time, the first one I shared, the difference is that even though I haven't bothered to publish either one of them so far, one of them I never intend to publish. It didn't get to the point where I considered it to be done. And that might actually be the difference. The beauty of World Storytelling Day, though, is that there are no rules. There are no guidelines. It's an annual event. In fact, I'll share a little bit about it here at the end of the show. It's an annual event designed to get people sharing things with each other. And there isn't any rule that says what's shared actually has to be good. Masters of None. Hey, it's Jay from Masters of None inviting you to check us out. We're the comedy podcast that doesn't suck, except for art. And Mike. And art. Totally. Dicks. Check us out at mastersofnone.com. I'm going to give World Storytelling Day the last word this year because it only seems fair. Two years ago when I talked about it, I spent more time with movie review uh, than true storytelling. 
And this time, of course, I've taken it in a, in a bizarre direction that I don't think anybody who's who's uh, actually formally involved in world storytelling day as an event would bless. But first, just some house cleaning. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. I have a Twitter handle at IC underscore Greg. I have clips of old shows that I've put onto SoundCloud. I'm at IC underscore Greg on SoundCloud as well. There also is a page for both Inappropriate Conversations and separately Walk the Earth, both podcasts on Facebook. And I do interact and try to maintain a regular presence there. But as I close this show today, and I could mention more, I could talk about Stitcher, as Stitcher sort of sorts itself out. At the time I'm doing this recording, they've had a, a rough year in terms of maintaining their uptime and availability. But I want to end by going to a website called daysoftheyear.com and focusing on the day World Storytelling Day and sort of let them tell the story. Because I can't guarantee that I'll be back next year or in a couple of years, but I might. And if you look at March 20th over the years, on a somewhat every other year pattern, you're going to find an inappropriate conversation focused on World Storytelling Day. I still think my favorite is the one called Being a Tree. That one came out four years ago in 2012. Being a Tree for World Storytelling Day, Inappropriate Conversations 83. But here's what the uh, website that focuses on holidays says. Once upon a time, a long time ago, well, actually back in 1991 in Sweden, a storytelling day was held. The ethos behind the event caught on around the globe, and now we celebrate World Storytelling Day on an international level. The aim of World Storytelling Day is to celebrate the art of oral storytelling, with as many people as possible around the world telling and listening to stories in their own languages on the same day. People taking part can link up with others around the globe who are also contributing, making it a truly international festival that creates new friends and promotes positive understanding of cultures around the world. So go on. Sit down with your friends and loved ones and join the United Nations of Storytellers on the day of celebrating cultural folklore and the art of oral storytelling. Why not spin a yarn and pass down your stories to the next generation? Funny, some of the stories are more worthy of being passed down than others. Thanks for listening.